that some feedback? All right, well, while I sort that out, um, we're good? All right, we're good. All right, well, it's always a joy to be here to share the word of God with you. And I um, want to commend you as a church for uh, your generosity and your service to God's name. Um, it's a privilege to be in a church where people are concerned not only about the word of God and just listening to the Sunday school game that we just played. You guys know your Bible inside and out. And um, I'm impressed by that. I'm also impressed by the spirit that you have of service. And today, though, I want to talk about the wrong way to worship. And um, so I want to preface that, of course, by saying that many of you worship the right way. And so I'm not saying that uh, you guys do it the wrong way. But it is good for us to inspect what that wrong way might be. Okay, so every once in a while, you read a book that kind of sticks with you throughout your life, right? And as a boy, I happened to pick up a book in the bookstore that was entitled The Giving Tree. Has anybody heard about that book before? Man. Um, It's a popular children's book having sold more than 10 million copies over 50 years. And I'll be honest, the time that I read it, I found it to be extremely disturbing. Um, It's a disturbing book. And it haunts me even to this day. Let me just give you a short synopsis of what the book is about. There are two characters in the book, just two. There's a a boy and a tree. And the tree loves the boy. And when the boy is young, the boy joyfully swings from the tree's branches and eats her apples. But as the boy grows older, he forgets about the tree. Until one day, the boy, now a young man, is troubled and comes looking for money. The tree doesn't have any money, but he says, well, I'll give you my, or she says, I'll give you my apples. And the boy takes the apples and sells them. The boy then forgets about the tree again until one day he comes back unsatisfied with his life and tells the tree, what I really need is a house. I need to build a house. Well, the tree is glad to see the boy and he says, why don't you take my branches? And you can use that to build a house. So the boy cuts down the tree's branches and builds the house. And the young man, well, the boy, now a young man, goes off and lives his life and again forgets about the tree. Until one day he comes back as a depressed middle-aged man. And he's looking now for not a house, but a boat that will take him far away because he's sad. So the tree, again, happy to see the boy, gladly offers his trunk or her trunk um, to, so that the boy can build a boat. So the boy cuts down the tree, and the trunk comes falling down, and he builds his boat, and he goes away. Forgets about the tree for many years. Finally, many years later, an old man comes back, very tired, no happier than before. And the tree, having nothing left to give the boy, just says, well, I have a stump that you can sit on. And the boy sits on the stump, and that's where the book ends. Now, the title of the book is The Giving Tree. And I suppose that's supposed to refer to a tree that gives out of unconditional love, right? And probably that's what many of you think about. But that's not what disturbed me about the book. What disturbed me the most about the book, even as a boy, was the boy in the story. The boy in the story never thanked 
or even showed any appreciation or love for the generosity of the tree. The only thought that the boy ever had was, what could I hack up next to get what I want, right? And even when I read the book at a young age, I thought that was morally repugnant. It's a morally repugnant thing to, to respond to love in that way. And in a similar way, we all know who's been around this church is that God loves us with a great love, doesn't he? He loves us so much that he gave his son for you so that you could live. Now, my question is, what has your response to that love been? There are two possible responses to that love. One is callous indifference, like the boy in the giving tree. There's another response, and really the right response to God's love is worship. Worship. Worship is the right response to God's love. Now, by worship, let me be clear, I'm not talking about music, right? Um, I'm talking about your whole life. How do you live your life? How is your obedience before God? What does your adoration of God in your life look like? What does your service to God look like? And what does your proclamation to God or proclamation of God look like? What do those things look like in your life? That's all wrapped up in worship. So let me give you a simple definition of worship. It's simply, listen, understanding who God is and what he's done for you and then responding to that. You understand what God has done for you and you respond to that. So the question I want to ask you is, what have you done with God's love? How have you responded to God's love? Have you forgotten it? Are you indifferent to it? Or have you responded with a life of worship? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Greg, I'm, I'm glad you're preaching this sermon because all of these other people sitting on this side of the room have to hear it. But thank you very much. I got this. Because I come to church every week, you see, and, and I sing the songs, and I even put stuff in the offering plate. So I think I'm covered all of that, I think that's enough to meet or even exceed the expectations of God. Well, standing tall in the Old Testament is a cautionary tale of people who did those very same things. And in some ways, they did it more faithfully than you or I. These people, they went to the temple. They brought the required sacrifices. They paid the tithes. But... To their surprise, they woke up one morning and they discovered that God had judged it and had declared it all worthless. It was all worthless. All these years, going to the temple, making the sacrifices, paying the tithes, God had judged it and found it unworthy. Why? Well, today we're going to find out where their worship went wrong. How does worship become worthless to God? That will be the main point of our study this morning. So turn to Malachi chapter 1 if you're not there already. We read it for the uh, scripture reading. Um, and of course, even in Sunday school in the last two weeks, we've gone over it. But um, it's on page 950, again, on your pew Bible, if that's what you're using. Let me uh, start with a word of prayer really fast. Father, 
I pray that you would illumine your word in our hearts and that you would have our church heed these warnings that we find here. That we would respond to you with a worship that's worthy of your great name in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so many of you who have been in Sunday school know more about the book of Malachi now than I do, but uh, just some background. It's written in about 450 B.C. At a, ten, at a time of intense disillusionment in the nation of Israel. See, Israel had just come back from exile. And they were expecting that now they were, that they were back, there was going to be prosperity and peace. And they were going to be maybe even expanding their territory. Maybe they would get out of this Persian occupation that they were under. And they anticipated even becoming the rulers of the earth. But 80 years later after that, joyful return, the reality facing them was a different reality. Because instead of prosperity and peace and plenty, what they found was poverty and pestilence and famine and drought and even war. Now, things were better for them, don't get me wrong, than they were in exile. They had their freedom. They had their livelihoods. But they weren't what they wanted to be. So they were disillusioned and discouraged and they started to doubt the love of God. And let's be honest, it's not that hard to relate to that, is it? I mean, today, we often find ourselves in difficult situations in life. And it's easy to start to wonder whether God loves us through those situations. Where is God's love in this? And I want you to understand this morning that doubting God's love is always the beginning of unworthy worship. That's where it begins. When you start to doubt God's love and you forget God's love, that's where your worship will become unworthy. God knows that this is the main problem in Israel and, and that they were doubting his love. And the reason they were doubting his love, is the same for us, is that they were evaluating whether God loves them on the basis of their what? Their circumstances, right? So your circumstances are always the wrong criteria to evaluate God's love. It's always the wrong criteria to evaluate God's love, your circumstances. And in Malachi 1, in verses 1 through 5, in the first five verses, God's purpose there is to remind Israel of the right criteria to evaluate his love. God first reminds Israel of how, how his love, what his love has accomplished for them in the past, that before they were even born, he chose them for love. He chose Jacob and not Esau. He chose to bless them and give them their own land, give them an own inheritance and a nation. And that was God's promise, and God had followed through indeed on that promise. Secondly, in these first five verses, God reminds them of his promised love in the future. You see, God promised them ultimate victory over all of these enemies they saw around them, including Edom. And long after their enemy Edom was gone, God says there, Israel would still be around to witness the greatness of God, you see. So he's directing them to his promise. And, and of course, Israel is around even today. So by focusing on their present circumstance, Israel had forgotten God's great faithfulness to them in the past and God's great promises to them in the future. And I want to say today we do exactly the same thing. We, we don't, when we look at our circumstances, we're lost. But what we ought to do is we look behind us. And where do we find behind us? 
find the cross. At the cross, God sacrificed his son for us. That is the clearest place we see God's love. And when we look ahead of us, what do we see? We see an eternal inheritance, eternal life, and an eternal crown of glory. A crown of glory that will never fade in 1 Peter 5. So we have two signposts of God's love for us. There's the cross that's before us, or cross that's behind us, and then there's the crown that's ahead of us, right? We're looking to the cross that's behind us and the crown that's ahead of us, and that's how we know God loves us. So don't forget that. That's where we find God's love most clearly displayed, not in your temporary circumstances. So I wanted to go through that because it's important that you understand that. Otherwise, the rest of the passage that we're going to talk about today is not going to make any sense to you. You see, all true worship that's pleasing to God, it must come from a deep appreciation of God's love. On the other hand, if you are to forget God's love, then your worship will become worthless. You see, worship, worthless worship comes from forgetting God's love. And that's what the Israelites did. And it's in response to Israelites' ingratitude and callous indifference to his love that in this text before us, God lays out for us one of the harshest texts you'll find in all of Scripture. And we must take heed in the warnings as well. So now look with me in verse 6 of Malachi 1. In verse 6, God is speaking to the Israelites about, about their worship. It says this, it says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Stop right there for a second. What's going on here? You will agree to, with me, of course, that it's universal in all cultures that a son ought to, ought, ought to respect his father, right? Why? Because the sacrificial love that his father has shown him in raising him and teaching him and providing for him and in protecting him, to neglect, to honor his father is to trample on that very love. Many verses in the Bible uh, call forth this truth. My favorite one has become Proverbs 30, verse 17, and this is what Proverbs 30, 17 reads. It says, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. And uh, I think that's one of the verses we should make our kids memorize, right? That's, that's the one. One verse you pick, you want to pick that one. Likewise, the, God says, a servant obeys his master. Because why? It's out of respect and fear of losing his job. We understand that. But to their God, the Israelites have given neither honor nor respect. Not even the basic human honor a son would honor his father with or a servant would respect his master with. If a father deserves honor and a master deserves respect, then how much more does the living God, the creator of all things, deserve honor and respect? See, the, to disrespect God, to disrespect God, is to act in a very foolish way. But here's what God's saying. God says, you have despised my name. Now, look back at the end of verse 6. Uh, we, we didn't read this verse. The Israelites respond like this. They're blind to how they, they, they've despised his name. 
So they're blind to it, and they say, But you say, how have we despised your name? And God explains it to them in verse 7. God says, You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, How have we defiled you? God says this, In that you say, The table of the Lord is to be despised. You see, the word despise here, another, another way to understand the word despise is really to show contempt, show contempt for. And the word defiled here could also be understood as polluted. They're, they're really the, sort of the same idea, to show contempt for and to pollute. Um, and God is accusing Israel of showing contempt for his name. Contempt, how? Because they offered to him sacrifices that were polluted. They engaged in unworthy worship. And if, you, if you're the kind who likes to take notes, um, today we're going to see from this passage two signs of unworthy worship, right? Just two, not three points, just two today. Uh, two signs of unworthy worship. Two things that if we see these things in our own worship, we know that we're in trouble. So the first sign of unworthy worship is found here in verses 7 to 12, and it's this. The first sign of unworthy worship is to bring a worthless sacrifice. To bring a worthless sacrifice. See, God here is accusing the Israelites of showing contempt by daring to bring a worthless sacrifice. Now, it's important to understand in about verse 7 that they don't go around saying with their mouths, right, that the Lord's table is contemptible. They don't show up in church one morning or temple one morning and say, boy, that, that table is contemptible, right? They don't do that with their mouths. And neither do we. How do they say it? They say it in their, in their actions. They say it by bringing with them a polluted and a worthless sacrifice. By doing that, they're saying this, God is no big deal. God and his name is worthless. That's what they're saying when they bring those sacrifices. See, what you bring to God and how you serve God, you are declaring with that how much God is worth to you. You see that? You are declaring that for all to see. You're declaring that for your family, in front of your family. You're declaring that in front of your friends. And you're also declaring that in front of your children. Wow, do any of us dare say that God is contemptible? But see, we betray what's really in our hearts by our actions. And here are the actions of the Israelites. Look down with me at verse 8. This is what verse 8 says. God says to the Israelites, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? See, what they were doing is they were bringing from their flock the blind, the lame, and the sick as their sacrifice. Back then, if you had a blind and a lame and a sick animal, it was worthless. Because, first of all, it's against God's law to even consume that meat. And you couldn't breed them. And they're, you know, to lead your, your flock, they're kind of falling behind. 
They're difficult to take care of, so they're actually a liability. They're worthless. And usually you would just put an animal like that out of its misery. But these were the very animals that they were bringing to God's altar. The worst of what they had, that's what they were giving to God. Don't you see that to offer God the worst of your flock, something unfit for human consumption, that's an open insult. We understand that. That's, a, that's common sense. That's an insulting gift. So God says this, why don't you take those diseased animals, those lame animals, those worthless animals, and why don't you try offering those to your governor? Let's see what, they, let's see what he would say. See, their governor in this, in, this, um, in this case, they're under Persian occupation. So their governor is a Persian, is an extension of the Persian king, who likely would have just killed them outright for their disrespect. They would not dare to do that. And today, if we, you know, you or I would go to meet perhaps the CEO of our company, and we were to bring them like an old sneaker, you know, or, um, you know, under the seat of our car, we would found like a half-eaten candy bar. Just found that a few days ago. Um, and you give that to your boss, you might expect to lose your job, right? Because that's a disrespectful gift. So God says, if your earthly governor would be displeased with this gift and he would not receive you kindly, why would you think to offer that gift to the what? What does it say God is in that passage? The Lord of hosts. Why would you offer that gift to the Lord of hosts? Wow. God uses that term actually very purposefully, the Lord of hosts. The term the Lord of hosts literally means the Lord of armies. The Lord of armies. Imagine in your life, uh, or imagine in your mind, uh, an innumerable army of angels, right? Innumerable. And in front of them is standing the shining king of glory. And he's leading the way. That's the picture. Do you think of God like that? That reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 53, when he was being arrested. He says this, Do you not think I can appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than what? Twelve legions of angels, right? What is a legion? A legion is about 6,000. So 12 legions of angels would be about 72,000 angels. Now, just to put that in perspective, in 2 Kings 19.35, one angel slayed 185,000 soldiers in one night. That's the kind of power one angel has. And you multiply that by 72,000, you're talking about unfathomable, unthinkable power. An army of angels stretching as far as your eye can see. Elsewhere in scripture, this army is called the hosts of heaven. And in front of them, leading them, is the Lord of hosts. And this king of glory is looking down from on, from on high upon these little Israelites, bringing him as gifts and tribute their worthless garbage. And he says, you have no honor or respect or fear of me. How dare you would insult the Lord of hosts like that? That's a downright suicidal thing to do, isn't it? These people have gone in completely insane. What would God have required of them? What, what, would, what, God, what would God want for them to offer that would please him? 
Well, first of all, let's get this out of the way. It's not about the money. It's not about the value. It's not about the raw monetary value of the sacrifice. God doesn't need their money, and he doesn't need their livestock. Why? Because God already owns all of it. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills, it says on Psalm 5011, uh, Psalm 5010. And every beast in the forest is already his. He doesn't need an extra dead goat or two. It's not what he needs. But here's the thing. God has a deeper purpose behind the whole sacrificial system. And God instituted this system to make a very specific point. What's the point? When God instituted the sacrificial system, he had very specific prescriptions for how he wanted the sacrifices to be brought. These prescriptions were found in a few places, but uh, one is in Leviticus 22, verse 20. And, you know, why don't you keep your finger in Malachi and try to turn back to Leviticus 22, verse 20. And uh, I'll read that to you. Leviticus 22, verse 20. It says this, whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a specific vow or for a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be what? Perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are what? blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make any of them an offering by fire on the altar of the Lord. See, these sacrifices were required to be perfect, unblemished, in fact, without defects. And specifically, explicitly, they couldn't be blind or lame or diseased. So God commanded the Israelites to bring not their worst, but their best, their most pure, their most worthy of their flock. Why? Because understand this, the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was just one big arrow. It was just one signpost that pointed to who? To Jesus, that's right. See, when Jesus Christ would come in another 450 years, he came as the blemished and imperfect son of God, right? No, no. He came as the perfect and spotless son of God. Jesus Christ was worthy in every way, in every way pure, without sin, without defect. See, you and I, we're blemished. We have sin and we have defects. But Jesus Christ didn't have any of those defects. And the purposes of all of the animal sacrifices was merely to point the way to Jesus Christ. See, your sin and my sin demands a reckoning. Every person in history who was a sinner, is a sinner, has sinned against God. And we are all blemished. And a just and a holy God demands that your sin be paid for in blood. Whose blood? Your blood. And the story should end there, but God is so gracious. And throughout the Old Testament, he set up this pattern for people to see. That when people sinned, instead of God demanding their blood and their life, as he righteously should, God said, I will 
overlook your sin if you provide a substitute death for that sin. The blood of a pure and a perfect animal. And why did it need to be pure and perfect? Because Jesus was pure and he was perfect. You see, God was introducing in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the big theological word, idea of substitutionary atonement. A substitute, substitutionary atonement. And we know that these dead animals was never going to cover their sin. Hebrews 10.4 tells us that explicitly in the Bible. It says it is impossible for the blood of what? Of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why? It just makes perfect sense. Is an animal life worth more or less than a person's life? More or less? Less, much less. So an animal's death can't possibly cover a person's sin. The whole point of the animal sacrifice was to foreshadow a sacrifice to come of infinite value, infinite worth, much more value than you or I, so that it would be sufficient to cover our sins with interest. And that sacrifice was, of course, Jesus Christ, the Father's own begotten Son, infinitely precious and infinitely worthy. God gave his Son, and he poured out his fearsome wrath onto the perfect lamb on Calvary. And those who believe in Jesus... His death, his death is accepted by God in place of your death. That's why we don't have to bring animal sacrifices anymore today because there's no need for the signpost now that the reality has come. But the Israelites, by coming and offering their blemished sacrifices, their impure sacrifices, they didn't display the sign that God intended. They, in fact, obscured the sign. See, blemished sacrifices don't point to Jesus. Jesus is not blemished. And so instead of proclaiming the good news of substitutionary atonement, Israel concealed the message, and he, they invalidated the gospel that God had wanted them to communicate. And that's the reason that God is so serious about this. Okay, so having said all that, let's just back up, take a time out. You might say, you know, Greg, this is all nice to be talking about animal sacrifices, but what does it have to do with me? I'm not killing animals at church, right? Hope not. But even today, God calls us to bring a sacrifice to him, doesn't he? Let me ask you, what kind of sacrifice are we, bring, are we to bring to God today as a believer? I want you to turn to Romans 12, and I want you to look at verse 1 with me, Romans 12, 1. Romans 12, 1. This is so clear here. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your, what? Bodies. As a living and holy, What? sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of what? Of worship. There it is. Guess what? You are the sacrifice. You are the sacrifice. Your whole life, everything about you, your life, your breath, all of that is to be poured out on the altar as a living sacrifice before God. 
You are to come and offer yourselves, body, mind, and soul, to God and his purposes. And what are God's purposes? In Ephesians 5.2, calls us to this. Ephesians 5.2 says this. God's purposes. To walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. A what? An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. See, Jesus demonstrated what it means to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. In Ephesians 5.2, it says that means you walk in love. See, it's no longer about you. If you're a living sacrifice, you have died. It is now about loving others. Not just other people in the world, but specifically, he's talking about God's people. God's people, the people that Jesus loved. Where do we find God's people? The church. That's right, the church. See, God calls us now to the church. Not the building, but the people in the building. To walk in love in the church. See, we, you and I, are called by our Lord of hosts to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the people that he loved. Do you get that? This is what Jesus said in John 13, 34. He says this, A new commandment I give to you that you, what? Love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So let me ask you, Calvary, how are you doing at that? Are you loving God's people sacrificially? You see, today we're not called to bring lambs and goats, are we? We're called to bring ourselves, our time, our gifts, our effort. To deploy all of it, not just the worst of it, but the best of it in service of the Lord of hosts. So let's just be really practical here. Are you always coming in late and in a hurry to leave? Are you not making an effort to talk or get to know anybody in the church? Because if you are doing that, then you can't be loving them, can you? Does it make sense? Oh, look, I know people are limited. I know your time is limited. But the question is this. Are you giving the best of your time to God? I mean, when was the last time you looked at your brother with love and you said, you know what, you can text me, you can email me, you can call me. I want to do what I can to build you up so that you can be a hero for Jesus Christ. What can I do to help you grow? How can I serve you? Look, some of you say, I don't feel connected. And I want to ask you, instead of blaming the church, Ask yourself this, what have you sacrificed to be connected to God's people? What have you sacrificed? See, as a living sacrifice, God calls you, not just me, not just the pastor. He calls you to love his people, his church. Make sure that the living sacrifice of your life isn't a blind and lame one. It's not the leftovers after spending the best of your energy and your time on yourselves. 
What did you sacrifice for God's people? Again, I, I want to say what I said at the outset. I don't mean to sound negative or, or harsh. Many of you are commended, are to be commended for your sacrifice. I know there are people in this very church who I know are struggling with significant issues. And you know what? Those people, you can't stop them from serving. They're my heroes. They're the first to volunteer for every ministry. Not because they necessarily love the ministry or feel, feel called to it, but they, they love the church and they want to fill the need. They're willing to be living sacrifices for God. On the other hand, if you call yourself a Christian and you're not serving God in any way with your time and your effort, in any way that is sacrificial to you, then you have to consider, is your sacrifice blind and vain before God? Some people in, in, uh, in America who thinks that it's enough to come to church one and a half hours a week. You know, Sunday morning, 11 to 12.30, that's God's time. That's what I'm going to give to God. And, and the rest of the week, I'm just kind of busy with my own stuff, right? I, you know, have to work and have kids to raise and, and uh, you know, TV shows and things like that. And I know everybody's different. I know everybody has different situations. But let's just face it. In general, if you're giving God one and a half hours a week out of your 168 hours a week, and if that is the extent at which you give God, you have to think about it. Is that a living sacrifice? Is that blind or is that lame? My point is this. We ought not to be trying to fit God in our schedule, right? Instead, being a living sacrifice means to make God and his people your schedule. Give God your schedule. See, that's the devotion that God demands. And that's the worthy sacrifice that you can bring to his altar. See, we should be stumbling all over ourselves, shouldn't we, to, to serve in every ministry in this church. The number of people I see in this room and the number of hands, we should never struggle ever to fill any ministry. We should never struggle to find people in nursery. We should never struggle to find people to give rides or to, to make meals for people. Those are just the simple things. And if you're able to help in these ministries, yet haven't stepped up, then don't give excuses. Don't wait for somebody to ask to come to ask you to serve. It's not fair to put all of that responsibility on other people. Instead, go and present yourself for service to God. Our deacons should be flooded with volunteers begging to let them have the privilege to sacrifice for the Lord of hosts. So understand that. If you're a Christian, your sacrifice ought to cost you something. It ought to, it ought to be painful. What happens if it doesn't? Let's read the next verse of Malachi and find out. In verse 9 of Malachi 1, it says this. But now, will you entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. See, this is what God's saying to the Israelites. He's saying, you would bring offerings such as this and then expect me to answer your prayers? You have some nerve. God will give your prayers as much respect as you give his altar. That's what he's saying. God's not done with his chewing out. Look in verse 10. Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the gates 
that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, said the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God would have you shut the gates, shut the doors of the temple, the church. Close the church. See, God's saying this, I'd rather have an empty church than to endure hypocritical worship. And brethren, I don't know about you, but I never want to hear those words out of God's mouth here at Calvary. Ever, amen? God says this, one of you, please close the whole thing down because I don't need you anyways. He's saying, I don't need you. Look at verse 11. From the rising of the sun, that is from the easternmost parts of the world, even to its setting, that is from the westernmost parts, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, said the Lord of hosts. This is what God's saying. There will be a time where among the nations of the whole world, Pure offerings will be offered in my name. And this is a reference to the kingdom that Christ will establish when he returns. I believe this is an eschatological reference. But you see, this is what's going on. Israel has always been God's chosen nation, right? They prided themselves in that. But God is saying, you think I need your lame and blind offerings? I don't need your offerings at all. My, great, my name will be great among all the nations of the world. Why should I put up with you? Maybe I be, should be looking at one of them instead of you. You see, God doesn't need your worship or mine. If we stopped worshiping him, what? The very rocks would cry out in praise. See, God doesn't command us to worship him because he somehow needs it, right? He calls us to worship him because, listen, it's for our own good to do so. It's a blessing and privilege to worship God. And if you don't give him the worship he's due, it is actually to your own detriment. Why? Because, listen, the blessing you will reap at the end is in some sense proportional to the sacrifice you give now. It's true. It's a biblical concept. In, in Luke 6.38, it says, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And in Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, it says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. See, the sacrifice you're giving to God now will one day be poured out into your lap in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, runneth over, right? To pour out an unworthy sacrifice now then is to later miss out on God's blessing. That's what God's saying. God's saying you could be missing out on the blessing. We wouldn't want that. But look at verse 12. The next two words are, are so sad. In verse 12, God says, but you, but you, but you are profaning it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. Yeah, they're going to be the ones missing out in the end. All right, well, back to our outline. The first sign of unworthy worship is to bring a worthless sacrifice. There's a second way that we can, um, we can bring an unworthy worship, and that is to bring a weary attitude. 
weary attitude. You find this in verses 13 to 14. In verse 13, it says this. God saying to the Israelites, you also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. Now here, God is bringing up a new charge. It's no longer merely about what they bring, but it's now about their attitude when they bring it. And here's their attitude. You know, this whole worship thing, this whole thing that God's calling us to do with the the sacrifice and all that, it's just so tiresome. Serving God is so tedious. Every week is the same thing. It's so much work. And, And the Israelites sniff at it. It means they turn up their noses at it. All the service is so routine, so beneath me. It's not for me. Come every week, we do the same things, we offer the same animals and sing the same songs. I'm just bored of it all, you know? Have you ever felt like that? This attitude, this very attitude is what God is condemning. See, we, we ought never to come to God's house and to worship him with a, a ho-hum, just kind of a bored with it attitude. Because coming with that attitude, this is what it's saying. You're saying, God is boring you. Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf, it's wearisome. I'm tired of thinking about it. See, we as Christians, we dare not come in any other way than with great zeal and great fervor. God is satisfied with nothing less than zeal for his name. And in Psalm 69.9, this is what the psalmist says. It says, Zeal for your house consumed me. Zeal for your house consumed me. Romans 12, 11 warns us not to lag behind in what? In diligence or zeal, but to stay what? Fervent, right? Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And brethren, believe me, God notices the fervency of your spirit and to the glory of his name. And if your spirit isn't fervent, this is what you do. You remember God's love. You remember God's love. You meditate again upon the cross before you, behind you, and the crown before you. That's what you think about. That's the key to, to biblical zeal. And you see, God doesn't just want us to do the right actions. He wants us to bring the right attitudes when we worship him. Our right attitude A right attitude asks whenever you come in those doors, you say, God, what can I do for you and your people this morning? It's a question that should be on your lips and on your hearts whenever you walk in. What can I do for these people? How can I talk to them? How can I encourage them? How can I find some time during the week to spend with them? How can I use my gifts and my abilities to build up your church, the body of Christ? Is that your attitude every week? Is that what's in your mind every week? If not, then we need to reflect on on whether we're bringing a weary attitude to God. God warns us, if we bring a weary attitude, we'll slowly become more and more brazen in our disrespect for him. Go back to verse 13, picking up in the middle of the verse. Verse 13 says this. And verse 13 of Malachi 1, sorry. Says, and you bring what is taken by robbery, and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. 
Should I receive that from your hand? Says the Lord. Now, in this passage, we see lame or sick again, but there's one more thing, in this, one element in this passage that's new, and that is things that are taken by, by robbery, taken by force. And this probably refers to things that were stolen. See, they were going and stealing their neighbor's unblemished lamb and then sacrificing that on the altar. See, I don't want to give up my own stuff, right? I'm going to go steal something from my neighbor and bring that to God. That's outrageous. That, that's, that's sin against their neighbor to steal their animal, to steal the best of their flock, and then they're going to go and present that to God as if he doesn't know, as if he doesn't care. I mean, is that evil? Is that foolish? They're unwilling to make any sacrifices for God themselves. They're fine with their neighbor doing it, and they're fine with stealing from their neighbor, wronging their neighbor to do it. That's the opposite of love. That's not loving your neighbor. It's the opposite of that. And that's what having a weary attitude will do for you. It doesn't matter. Just, just bring anything. Go over there and take his stuff. You know. And forget that God is an avenger of wrongdoing. And they lost all their fear of God. And finally, people with these weary and disdainful attitudes will not only become brazen in their disrespect, willing even to cheat their neighbors, but eventually they'll become willing to cheat God himself. This is an interesting verse. Go look at it in verse 14. This is our, our, our last verse today. Verse 14. It says this, But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Stop right there. You see, this is a picture of a man who you know, he needs something, right? He, maybe there's something going on in his life, and he prays to God that God would help him, right? So God would fill his need. And as the custom of the time, he would sometimes make a vow and say, you know, if you do this for me, God, I, I will give you the sacrifice as a sign of my thankfulness, as, a, as an offering of thanksgiving. So God, in his goodness, accomplishes whatever it is a man wants, whatever he prays for, but then when it's time to fulfill his vow to God, the man now thinks, oh, but I don't want to bring the best one over here. Um, I got what I wanted now, so why don't I just bring the blemished animal? And, and this is what he's talking about. He's going to bring the blemished animal as thanksgiving to what the Lord has graciously blessed him with. It's not, now, is that not wrong? Is that not an evil thing to do? The man did not have to make the vow, but then after tasting the goodness of God, he responds with ingratitude. He's only thinking about his own bank account, right? So this man acts in bad faith to God and just brings a whatever sacrifice, breaking his vow to God and cheating God. This is the heart of a deeply ungrateful and selfish man. This man will... Listen, he will gladly take from God's hand blessing, right, and benefits. He'll gladly take that. But when it comes time to give thanks and devotion and sacrifice, nowhere to be found. Not willing to sacrifice anything of value. He just wants God to give him what he wants. See, that's the evil heart that we're looking at here. And we're no different when we come to our church and 
We look constantly only to receive from God, as we rightly do. But then it never crosses our mind to think about what we can give as thanksgiving and as devotion to God. And if that's us, what have we forgotten? Look, look at the end of verse 14. What have we forgotten here? God just makes it clear here in verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is what? Feared among the nations. Do you believe that God is a great king? That he is the Lord of hosts of heaven? Do you fear the name of God? Then let us not dare to give him unworthy worship. And let's remember daily the great love that God has displayed for us in the cross in the past and in the crown in the future. And let us have a joyful and zealous attitude to continually bring before God sacrifices that are costly and worthy of his great name, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, we are here for you in this church. We're not here for any other reason. We're here to worship you and give you the devotion that you deserve. So awaken in our hearts a longing for you, a zeal for you, that we would never again bring blemished sacrifices to your altar, but that we would strive to bring the, the worthiest sacrifices that we can bring. Whatever we bring, we know it's not enough. However we serve, we can never serve enough. We're not trying to repay you. But Lord, we want to show thanks. We want to worship you in a worthy way. Help us to be a church full of your zealous servants who have given our lives for you as living sacrifices. And help us to be ready to do your will as you call on us to work in your church to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning we have our Lord's table. And uh, the men who are serving, would you come forward now?